This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. This is a core challenge for all of our societies at this point, which is to reclaim space for tolerance and understanding. And in the absence of that, you know, the refugee resettlement problem is going to be difficult to solve. But so are a bunch of other problems that we're grappling with. You're listening to Displaced, the podcast that's all about the global refugee crisis, what's causing displacement and what we can do about it. I'm Grant Gordon. And I'm Ravi Gurumurthy, and we're your co-hosts on the show. In our day jobs, we work at the International Rescue Committee, where we think about different ways to innovate to humanitarian response. So far this season, we've examined the future of war, what are the top conflicts to watch in 2019, how technology is changing the conduct of war, and how do we better protect civilians in conflict. If you didn't listen to the last episode, it made Ravi sound like a warmonger, so please go back and listen to it. It's fantastic. <laughs> it's a recurring theme on this podcast that somehow I end up sounding like a neocon, just when I'm playing devil's advocate. Um... We're now turning our focus to another big issue that humanitarians face and we at the RRC really grapple with, which is refugee resettlement. Today, there are 1.4 million refugees who are in need of resettlement. And refugee resettlement has been under attack since the Trump administration came in and reduced the number of refugees the United States takes. We're at an inflection point right now where as we head into the 2020 election, refugees and refugee resettlement are going to be a huge part of the national debate. And the next few episodes are really going to set the table for you for how to understand those debates. Refugee resettlement is really in the DNA of, of the IRC. When we were founded by Einstein in the 1930s, it was to help Jewish artists and intellectuals like Marc Chagall and Max Ernst escape uh, Nazi-controlled uh, Europe and, and, and into the US. So Right now, we are thinking not just about how we defend that tradition and stop the refugee resettlement system crumbling under the attack it's had in the last few years, but how we can broaden the coalition of countries and actually reform resettlement. I've been grappling personally with how to think about resettlement of the past two years since we started working on it. And the thing that I have left this with, the thing that I still think about every day is that refugee resettlement is important precisely because it's crucial to open your doors to people who have no other options. It's a choice about who we are, what we want our communities to look like, and how we engage in the world. In the first episode of the series on refugee resettlement, we're going to talk with Jeremy Weinstein, who's a professor of political science at Stanford University, but who's also worked in government. He served as Samantha Power's deputy while she was the U.S. ambassador to the United Nations and has worked on the National Security Council. He's the perfect person to set the context with on refugee resettlement because he blends a unique perspective of both research and policymaking. And one of the things we're going to get into with Jeremy is some work we've been doing together on how you can use machine learning to place refugees in a smarter way, how we can use data. And I find this fascinating because while I was enthusiastic about this whole project, I must confess, um, Grant, that I didn't really think it would have much of an impact. I thought that if you use data to, instead of human intuition to match refugees, it might have a 5 or 6% increase in the outcomes. But the the, the promise of the, of the algorithm is immense, potentially a 40% increase in the employment outcomes of refugees after three months, which is pretty extraordinary in any social policy situation. I mean, it's one of the reasons that refugee resettlement is really interesting. Never in social policy do you get to 
decide where somebody goes. And like that's at the core of what refugee resettlement is. What country are they going to? Where in that country are they going? And it's ripe for innovation. Jeremy Weinstein, welcome to Displaced. Thanks so much for having me. Jeremy, of all the many illustrious positions you've held in academia, in politics, I'm sure you'll agree there's no greater privilege that you've had than than being Grant Gordon's PhD supervisor. Oh, throwing me under the bus from the get-go. <laughs> exactly. Well, uh, just tell us more about that experience from your side and what did you learn about Grant? So, you know, there's nothing better <laughs> in the job of, uh, of, of being a professor, of encountering earnest and passionate uh, students who want to impact the world. Um, so I wish Grant was one of those. No, but in fact, he is. <laughs> I, was like, I was about to say, this is why we brought you on. But uh... <laughs> Exactly. Um, you know, and I think one of the great things for me as, a, as, as someone who's been both a faculty member and a policymaker is to find my way and have students find their way to me who have real world experience and think that the tools of social science have something meaningful to offer. Uh, in the world, and Grant uh, is the epitome of bringing those two things together. Uh, so I learned a tremendous amount from being his advisor, and it's just so exciting to see the kind of impact he can have uh, working with a group, uh, an organization like IRC. Uh, by, like by having a podcast like this, right? <laughs> a podcast is a start towards change. <laughs> okay, we're going to take a hard pivot into actual content and less self-embarrassment. Um, so we are here to talk about refugee resettlement. Um, this is a, a mini-series that we're doing on refugee resettlement, its current state, and what we think some of the futures of resettlement look like. And to paint a picture, about 100,000 refugees were resettled last year of the 300,000 refugees that were deemed in need of resettlement. And there's now a cumulative backlog of about 1.4 million refugees in need of resettlement. And, and that's a huge number. But when you actually compare it to the total number of refugees, 25 million, and the total number of displaced individuals, which hovers over 68 million, this seems like a small number. Why should we focus on this, our energies on this tranche? So I think that's a great question, and, and I'm glad you laid down the sort of basic statistics. I think where I'd start is to say that, you know, as we think about the refugee population around the world, and keep in mind, uh, these are people who are fleeing from their homes uh, because they have a well-founded fear of persecution. Uh, back in the countries that they came from, they're freeing violence, they're freeing repression, and they're often sort of leaving with sort of all of their possessions, everything they can carry on their back, and that's it, uh, often on short notice. You know, the UNHCR, which is the UN agency in charge of thinking about and, and managing the refugee crisis, thinks about three different paths for dealing with this refugee population. The first is facilitating their integration in neighboring countries. And you can think about just how viable that path is, given the large numbers of people that fleeing Syria are in Lebanon and Jordan and Turkey, making up at times 10 to 15 percent of the national population in those countries. So that is a viable path, at least in the near term, for what can happen to refugees when they're forced to leave their homes. The second possibility is to return people to their countries of origin. Of course, in a long-running refugee crisis like we have in Syria now or had in Afghanistan in the past, Somalia, Sudan, and other contexts like that, the possibilities for return are really quite limited. The violence is ongoing. People still face the risk of being on the receiving end of violence. And so this third category of resettlement, which is the idea that countries that are not neighbors to the crisis but countries elsewhere in the world 
will take on responsibility for some of the most vulnerable populations, for those individuals who and their families who can't be returned, uh, but who also can't find a viable sort of strategy for resettlement in a neighboring country. The idea that the rest of the world will take responsibility for facilitating their resettlement often in advanced economies in places like the United States and Canada, the United Kingdom, other European countries, Australia, New Zealand, and others, has been a long-running part of the world's commitment to managing refugee crises. And you can imagine that the returns for individuals of being resettled in these environments can be quite substantial. So you're talking about some of the most vulnerable people in the world with no viable option, with a well-founded fear of persecution. And so the openness of other countries in the world that are not geographically proximate to the crisis to facilitate the resettlement of, of this population of refugees and put them on a path to citizenship and, and full access to the rights and privileges of, of living in another country is an absolute lifesaver for really important and vulnerable people around the world. And that's why I think it's so important that we focus on this population, not to the exclusion of others, but recognizing that this is an important and viable path to managing the challenges associated with refugees. And do you think that 1.4 million uh, refugees who need resettling, is that an overestimate or an underestimate? Because I think you can look at this from two different directions. When we look at individual cases that IRC has resettled, you find that, for instance, an individual may be resettled because of a health issue who potentially could have treated that health issue but haven't. Now, to what extent is that an example of somebody who absolutely needs resettling to a third country? Um, and then you also hear on the other side of things, you know, large numbers of refugees who are in the most appalling conditions. And you think, well, why are they not being um, defined as a need of resettlement by the UN? So how much integrity does that 1.4 million um, figure have? So UNHCR is the is the keeper of this status, you know, has official responsibility for determining sort of the most viable path uh, for particular individuals. And while one might think that that's a criteria that could be applied purely objectively, we also have to live in the world in which we live, uh, which is that UNHCR recognizes that uh, the resettlement slots are already massively oversubscribed. And so UNHCR has to manage these flows in a way that's attentive not only to the kind of risks and threats that people face, but also the needs that they confront for access to medical services or resettlement for, for a number of reasons. And so I guess what I'd say is my guess is that in a world with many more resettlement spaces, UNHCR actually might generate a larger number of refugees in need of resettlement uh, because the situation that so many individuals confront in neighboring countries where social services and public services are vastly overburdened, where the resources are not really there to facilitate resettlement in place in one of these neighboring countries, where the threat of persecution continues in part because refugee camps can often be places where governments continue to exercise some surveillance, even across borders, that the population would likely grow. But we exist in a world now with so few countries uh, stepping up to the plate and so few resettlement spaces that UNHCR has to be as rigorous as possible in applying these criteria. So this is actually one of the really interesting things to me about refugee resettlement is, is that you take somebody who is a kind of vulnerable refugee and you take them most often from an environment that is a 
uh, low or middle income country, and you essentially give them a golden ticket to a wealthier state, a United States, a UK, a Canada, like you mentioned before. And it's possibly one of like the quickest individual poverty reduction strategies you can use by essentially putting somebody uh, from one of those countries on a plane to a place where they can then kind of work in an environment where there's more returns to their skills and they're just in a richer place. And to that extent, I think it actually starts to test a little bit of the debate that you see in open borders, which I think kind of taken at its severe end is a conversation about how do you take people from environments where they're, you know, uh, lower returns to kind of the work that they do and and move them to richer countries. And this maybe seem like a, a side piece, but like, to what extent do you think the way that refugee resettlement works now offers insight into the debate on open borders? And, and what do you think some of those lessons are? Well, I think it's really important to keep these issues distinct. You know, there's been a long history of a focus since World War I and World War II on the population we call refugees. And that was partly motivated by the large numbers of displaced people who were fleeing conflict, who were fleeing persecution, who were feeling, fleeing discrimination and violence directed at them because of their identity, because of their religion, and the challenge that the world had of absorbing those populations. And so the Refugee Convention in the 1950s and the resettlement programs that followed suit as UNHCR was created were generated in order to create a system for managing crises in which individuals and families were forced to leave the countries that they were in because of this well-founded fear of persecution uh, and had no other option but to depart. And I think we really need to distinguish that from more general patterns of migration that are voluntary, that are choices that people make about where they might realize the best returns to their investments in education, the skills that they have, what kinds of environments they want to live in. And the debates that you're talking about regarding open borders, regarding you know, what sorts of strategies we have to determine who can enter legally and through what mechanisms. That's not really about vulnerable people who've been forced from their countries involuntarily. That's a question of how does the world think about managing opportunities for migration. Now, you're not wrong that, you know, if one thinks about the most cost-effective poverty reduction strategies in the world, creating more spaces for people from poor countries to live in rich countries— would absolutely be a hugely effective poverty reduction strategy. And work by people like Michael Clemens of the Center for Global Development demonstrates that in powerful, empirical ways. But I think we need to separate that debate from the question of what we do with 1.4 million people who, by virtue of their involuntary exit from the country of origin, their fear of persecution, are in a situation in which they cannot stay where they are and they cannot return home. And sort of opening up those spots in developed countries to resettle people, you know, from these difficult environments characterized by violence and repression, I think is a totally different issue. And one can be massively in support of growing refugee resettlement in the United States, in Canada, in other places, uh, while still believing that with respect to patterns of economic migration, we need a process that figures out how to balance what the economic returns are to migration with some of the potential costs with respect to job competition to the extent that exists and other criteria that people have brought to that debate. 
So, I mean, I just want to finish this section on why refugee resettlement matters. Because obviously when, uh, as, as Grant said, you take a refugee, a Congolese refugee from a uh, refugee camp in Burundi or Tanzania and bring them to the US, that is a transformational opportunity. But there's another reason why refugee resettlement settlement matters. It's the fact that it's a way of richer countries showing solidarity with those countries on the front line, neighbouring conflict-affected places. And there's an argument made that unless rich countries demonstrate that solidarity, the whole global protection regime will fall down and and countries will start saying, well, we're not going to accept any more refugees. We're not going to protect them if you're not going to take any of the burden. Now, you're an evidence-based person, Jeremy. To what extent do you think that argument actually holds water? So I think you know, the the frailty of the international protection regime for refugees is very much on display, and it's been on display since the large sort of out-migration from Syria, you know, in this decade, including in the effects on Europe. Um, but not only in the sort of challenges that we've seen with respect to European governments pushing back against refugees, but also as we see, for example, uh, in the Horn of Africa and East Africa and Kenya's threats to shut down the refugee camps that exist on the Somali border. I'd say that I'd say two things, Ravi, in response to your question. The first is that for countries that are neighboring countries in crisis, you know, that end up being, as we know, the largest hosts of refugee populations in the world. These are countries in the global south, not generally the the sort of countries in the global north. Their top priority is to be in a position, number one, to meet the needs of their own population. Uh, So for the Kenyan government, thinking about Kenyan citizens and the need for access to health and education and employment. And so a top priority for them is to have access to the kinds of resources uh, that they need, not only to deliver what their population needs, their own citizens, uh, but also to help manage uh, these emergency populations uh, that are now living in their territory. And that creates some real tensions in a budget-constrained environment especially when the international system is rarely able to raise the kinds of resources that these humanitarian crises demand. So often what you have with host countries is they find themselves in a position where they are managing the largest refugee populations of any country in the world, but all of the appeals for funding through the UN humanitarian system go underfunded. So that puts them in a hugely difficult position, and a lot of the politics that we've seen about humanitarian response reflect the desire of the Jordans, the Lebanons, uh, Turkey, and others to ensure that that they receive some assistance from countries that care about the management of the refugee crisis internationally, but are not themselves neighboring to the conflict and thus aren't in a position to be hosting large numbers of refugees. So I think that's the first important part of the kind of social contract among nations around refugee resettlement or refugee crises. The second is, as you said, this question of of how one acts in solidarity beyond the resources that one uh, commits to the frontline states. And there, I think it's hugely important. I mean, this was one of the major drivers uh, behind President Obama's commitment to increase the ceiling for refugees to be resettled in the United States in 2015 in the middle of the Syria crisis. The idea being that Uh, Turkey, Jordan, and Lebanon were already making massive commitments of their own to host refugees. We were seeing with Angela Merkel's commitment in Germany, the same from Germany and some other European countries. And President Obama wanted to signal on behalf of the United States the same commitment. The U.S. was already the largest resettler of refugees in the world and has been for quite some time. But the idea was we needed to double that commitment. We needed to demonstrate just how serious we were. 
and I think all of those are an important part of maintaining some cooperative regime internationally between the countries that are on the front line and the neighboring states and others that are further removed from the crisis, but invested in an international system in which we have cooperation with respect to managing threats like these. But Jeremy, I mean, just to play devil's advocate, don't you think that given the choice, those countries would much prefer the first thing you mentioned, which is more money, rather than taking tens of thousands of refugees, which is actually a very, very small uh, number when you look at look at it in the context of a million refugees, for instance, in Jordan or Lebanon? Well, let me actually just say one thing, right? Like, so you take Jordan, which, and we've talked about this on the show before, you know, an estimated 1.2 million refugees coming in, which is the equivalent of the United States absorbing 63 million refugees in about five years. And then you think about the resettlement numbers, which are thousands. And like, that's a drop in the bucket for Jordan. But you could, you could totally imagine that actually it makes no difference to resettle a small number of refugees and they want the funding. I think what's important to say, though, is that this is also kind of the, the same side or the opposite side of the same coin is what I think a lot of nativist arguments kind of sound like, which is no need to resettle refugees here. Don't bring those refugees in. Send the money over there. It goes a longer way. We don't want them inside. And I think it's important calling that out because it's, I think, oftentimes embedded within some of the pieces, but could also be a genuine request of countries who resettlement numbers just don't move the dial for. I just don't accept it as an either-or proposition. Ravi, you're absolutely right that those countries on the front line would like larger flows of resources to help them manage these crises. And that is something that the international community should step up and do. We need you know, significantly more funding for humanitarian crises, uh, especially for those countries that are hosting, you know, large populations of displaced uh, refugees. That said, as I described at the outset, this third pathway, uh, which we call resettlement, is reserved for those for whom staying in place in a host country simply is deemed not to be a viable option, either because of threats that they face, because of particular and unique needs that the individuals have. And so this is a highly vulnerable population. And so I think it's an important pillar of the resettlement regime. And just because uh, one can only resettle tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands doesn't mean that one should turn that dial down to zero and invest those resources entirely in resettlement in frontline and neighboring states. These are important parts of the package. Uh, and as, as Grant rightly said, uh, the returns on resettlement to you know, the, the most advanced economies in the world are quite significant. So they benefit not only the individuals who come, who get the refuge they need, who get the medical care and support they need, but they also have the potential via remittances to support family members who aren't able to leave. And I think we just shouldn't pretend when we talk about, well, let's just support people in neighboring countries, what that actually means. Often that means people living in poverty, in refugee camps, uh, sometimes outside of refugee camps in urban areas, without access to some of the basic services they need, without food security, sometimes without access to the education system. So I don't, I don't think we want to kid ourselves uh, when we say that that option for sort of, you know, more permanent and durable solutions for refugees isn't a particularly appetizing solution and one we need to think about how to improve as well. So one of the ways in which we can try and win the argument for resettling more refugees, whether it's in the US or in other countries, 
is to show that they are actually a benefit to society. They they thrive when they enter here. And the data uh, is very strong on that. But can you just give me a portrait of how refugees, when they enter, say, the, the US, where I think we've got um, good information, particularly in the short term, about what happens to them, how many of those refugees thrive, get get jobs and are relatively self-sufficient, and what proportion struggle to get by? So, Ravi, in answer to your question, I'd start by saying across countries that resettle refugees, there are a variety of different strategies and approaches that are taken. So, in the United States, for example, there's an emphasis on what we'd call early employment. The idea is that when refugees are resettled in the United States— We want to get them into the workforce as quickly as possible. And typically, we aim to do that within 90 days of arrival. In many of the European countries that resettle refugees, employment is delayed. The idea is that you want to position people to acquire the new language of the country in which they're arriving, to re-credential or develop necessary skills for the job market, and then within a year or two to transition to the workforce. And I think some of the questions that social scientists uh, are thinking hard about is, To what extent do we have a sense of whether an early employment model that challenges people to get into the workplace, uses the workplace as an environment for uh, facilitating integration and the acquisition of language, to what extent does that work better or worse uh, than, you know, the strategies that we see in European countries? And I don't think we have a very good answer to that question, in part because these strategies are adopted by very different countries with very different policies and lots of other ways. But you also asked me specifically about the United States. And what I'd say is that we've built a resettlement architecture in the United States that does a pretty good job of getting people into employment opportunities early. The challenge for resettled refugees is that the evidence suggests that over kind of eight to to 20 years, refugees get to a point where they're earning enough that they pay back into the system and pay more than the costs Uh, that were spent to bring them here and any costs that were invested, you know, in them to facilitate their integration. But that happens over a decade. That takes time. And the key from the perspective of making refugee resettlement work is how do we put refugees uh, in a position where not only can they get that entry-level job, but like anyone we're trying to enter into the labor market, they can get the increasingly skilled jobs that enable them to grow their earnings. And I think the real risk is... One wants to not put refugees in a position where they simply become a part of the working poor. Like anyone in the country, we want to position refugees to get the skills they need to get high-paying jobs. You've been somebody who's generally focused your work on conflict zones in sub-Saharan Africa and low-income economies. And then you move to look at refugee resettlement, which all happens in often OECD countries and wealthy countries. What was the thing that surprised you most when you started looking at this space? So, you know, I first really began to think about the domestic aspect of resettlement when I was serving as the deputy to the U.S. ambassador to the United Nations in 2015. And it was stunning to me that despite, you know, nearly 30 plus years of refugee resettlement in the United States, when we began to contemplate the idea of resettling more refugees in the United States, going from a cap of, say, 60,000 a year to 110 or 120,000, that we really didn't have robust evidence to bring to the table about a whole variety of questions. Number one, how do refugees do after they arrive? Uh, Number two, what are the most effective strategies for facilitating resettlement? And not having access to this basic information handicapped us 
when it came to the question of engaging governors and engaging mayors and other municipalities uh, and states in making the case that, as Ravi said, the returns to resettling refugees are positive, you know, on net, um, that they grow over time, that these are challenges that can be managed by localities. Um, and we really didn't have any systematic data to speak to this problem. So we only gather data systematically 90 days after refugees arrive. And if you want to know about longer-term outcomes, we don't really have mechanisms in place uh, in order to know how refugees do over time. Um, and so in contrast, in other countries in Europe, in Canada, these are things that are measured much more systematically. So I was pretty shocked by what we would call this evidence desert around refugee resettlement. And I thought that even though this had become a highly politicized issue, and often evidence doesn't matter all that much in a highly politicized debate, that we really didn't even have the sort of concrete information that we needed to make the strongest case as to how we could manage a growing flow of refugees being resettled in the United States. We're going to take a quick break here. When we're back, we're going to talk about how data can be used to resettle refugees in a much smarter way. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. And we're back with Jeremy Weinstein. Jeremy, how would you explain the matching algorithm to your children? Thanks, Grant, uh, for that question. <laughs> and how old, how old yeah, are you? Take, take us back, Dad. <laughs> My kids are 11 and 8, and they're highly skilled. So I explain it almost exactly the way that I explained it to you. So, I mean, the, the simple idea is let's take advantage of everything we can learn from historical data about how particular types of people fare economically in particular types of places. And let's use that information to make the best possible decision about where people should go. So the way the refugee resettlement program works in the United States is when refugees arrive, they are allocated through a fairly ad hoc process of the refugee resettlement agencies to different office locations around the country. And these are local nonprofits. Sometimes they're part of national nonprofits like the IRC that have a space available and the capacity to provide refugee resettlement services. And when we began to look inside the data at these 90-day employment outcomes, what we found is a couple striking things. Number one, that the likelihood that an individual has employment after 90 days is a function of some of the expected things that you think that individuals bring with them. For example, their level of education and their facility with the English language. People who are more educated and people who are better able to speak English are much more likely to be employed. We also saw significant variation in the likelihood that an individual was employed as a function of where they were sent. That is, if you were sent to some places, you were much less likely to be employed. In other places, you were much more likely to be employed. And that could be a function of the labor market. It could be a function of whether you have co-ethnics who can facilitate your access to employment opportunities in the area. But the most striking thing that we were able to discover as we began to play with data on refugee resettlement is that it was also the case that 
there was an important synergy that we could uncover between people's individual characteristics and the characteristics of the locations that they were sent. That is, for example, with the language English, there are some places where not speaking English had a really negative effect on your likelihood of being employed, and some places where not speaking English really didn't affect your entry into the job market. Uh, there were some places where people from a particular country, say Afghans or people from Sudan, would do exceptionally well, and other places where people from those countries would not do terribly well. And so this suggests there are important interactions between people's individual characteristics and the places that they're sent, which if refugee resettlement agencies and the government could exploit those synergies, could take those synergies into account when they allocate people to places, you could actually generate significant gains in the likelihood that individuals are employed at almost zero cost. And so that's the work that we began to do in the US and Switzerland. The average rate of being employed after three months uh, in the United States was about 30% with one resettlement agency's data that we were looking at. And by implementing a matching algorithm and actually taking into account these historical synergies, we can increase the average employment rate to 45%, right? Which is almost a 50% gain. So I feel like if we were doing this interview two years ago, everybody would have been super excited about this algorithm because it was a moment when like technology and algorithmic decision making was celebrated unequivocally. And I think with the fall of tech largely in kind of the public space, a lot of this has become questioned. And right now you are teaching a class on the ethics of technological disruption at Stanford on these issues. How have you changed your mind in light of what we found out about some of the downsides of algorithms when you think about applying this matching algorithm to refugee resettlement? So I wouldn't say my mind has changed as a function of the backlash against tech. I think we went in with eyes open about what an algorithm enables and what risks it potentially has. And so some of the concerns that are now being raised in public conversation about algorithmic decision-making, for example, to what extent is the training data biased in some way that you would encode that history of bias in anything that comes out of the algorithm? How does an algorithm interact with human judgment and decision-making? Right? Do you really want to move away from any human judgment and purely rely on algorithms or not? What are the politics of that? What are the ethics of that? What does it look like in implementation? These are, these are things that we were thinking about sort of quite regularly as we began work with you and other resettlement agencies on this issue of how to best uh, and most effectively allocate refugees. So let me give you a couple examples. So one thing you might wonder is if we can generate really significant gains with respect to uh, the employment level of refugees through an algorithm, is it the case that somehow we're cherry picking, right? Basically, we're sending the most employable people to the places with the most employment opportunities, and everyone else is doing badly, especially those who have the least skills. So that's something that you can actually check for, right? And you can make sure that as we demonstrate in the work that we've done, that this sort of approach realizes synergies that benefit people across the entire distribution of skills and experiences, people from all the different countries that are being resettled, both men and women, right? So some of the systematic patterns of bias that you've seen appear in other algorithmic decision-making uh, innovations, we have actually tested for and looked for systematically in our own data. Another question you might raise is, well, to what extent can we 
realize these gains in the world and to what extent learning from past history is a good predictor of outcomes going forward. And I think our approach to thinking about algorithmic decision-making is one that really emphasizes a learning model in the sense that we have developed a technology that updates over time. So if it's the case that uh, the past, the, the far past, is no longer a good predictor of where, say, Syrian refugees with a college education uh, and a family of four will perform well, the algorithm is going to update over time because you're constantly refreshing the training data that's being used uh, to generate a prediction. The last example I'd give you, if you'll just bear with me one more minute, is to say, okay, well, what about encoding sort of historical bias? So one thing that the algorithm is going to pick up is, for example, how individuals from different parts of the world, maybe with different religions, different cultural identities, perform in different parts of the country. And to the extent in the United States that there are people who are systematically discriminated against in a particular location by virtue of their cultural origin or their religion, and as a result, integrate less successfully, that is something that the algorithm would take account of when it allocated people to places. Right? So if it was the case that particular groups were discriminated against in a given location, you'd be unlikely to send more individuals to that location. And I think that underlines sort of one of the tensions, which is if your objective as IRC is to ensure the best possible outcomes for refugees, you might be very comfortable with that outcome. That is, you don't want to send them to places where they're not going to do well. But if your objective function as the United States government is to ensure an equitable allocation of refugees to places, right? Or to even challenge the discrimination that exists against refugees in particular places, then you might not want to do that reallocation. But you have to recognize that that reallocation would come at the cost of the experience of those individuals who would face that discrimination and potentially not integrate as well. So so the whole uh, algorithmic placement is predicated on the idea that obviously through an algorithm, you are better able to match the personal characteristics, their skills, their background with the characteristics of the place that they're being resettled to than uh, five people sitting in a room uh, looking at the profile of individuals. But what about the individuals themselves? Because this is still quite a fundamentally paternalistic system where we're trying to make decisions on their behalf. How much potential do we have to move towards a system where refugees' preferences for where they want to live are factored in? So I think this is an issue at the Immigration Policy Lab that we're thinking about a great deal, uh, because I think like you, we value very much the idea of autonomy uh, and the dignity associated with making some of these choices. And there's been a lot of discussion in international humanitarian circles about how to give refugees more say and more choice. And so we're currently developing technologies that would enable us to accurately measure refugee preferences and to think about how to integrate those preferences into a matching algorithm. You could imagine ways of building systems that would incorporate both an estimate of refugees' likely returns on moving to different places, but also incorporate their preferences. You can also imagine undertaking an exercise where as refugees develop their preferences about where to go, you inform them about the likely outcomes based on historical data that they would realize in different places and use that to build a data-driven decision-making process into the choices that refugees make. So there are lots of possibilities for doing this, but I think the really important point to make is that we need to understand a lot more about how refugees' preferences are formed 
Um, because often refugees, as Grant described, are moving from uh, low-income developing countries with not a lot of exposure to the United States or Canada or the United Kingdom, Ireland, any of these places. And so their ability to think very concretely and in detail about whether they'd prefer to be in New Mexico or in South Dakota or Mississippi or New York State, they really don't have the kind of information to make that decision. And so one would really need to build a process for eliciting preferences that we would be confident in using as part of our assignment mechanism. Just to put like a pin in that, like if you said to me tomorrow, like you have to go to a new country, like where in any number of countries would you want to go? Like I would have no idea. Well, some of my colleagues have done survey work on this uh, with migratory populations in North Africa during the height of the Mediterranean crisis. And often one of the most important predictors of where people want to go is where their favorite football team is, right? Because these are the kinds of things that people in the world pay a lot of attention to. So whether it's you want to go and be near Arsenal Stadium or Man U or Tottenham, these are the kinds of things that that sort of, you know, people more generally know about. But you're right, Grant, they don't know about the details about where job opportunities exist and where housing prices are affordable. So we've talked a bit about the the placement of refugees and how you put them in a, in a, a location that where they will thrive. After that, I think you touched on a really important distinction between how the US does it and many other countries, this uh, focus on work first in America, whereas there's a stronger investment in education in, in particularly European countries. But beyond that distinction, what other differences in how different countries resettle refugees do you think are most striking and ones that we can learn from? And I'm particularly interested in your views on on the Canadian model of sponsorship, which really leverages volunteer networks, but also any countries which perhaps provide a longer and broader support to refugees beyond the three months that the the U.S. does. Let's start briefly with the the Canadian model. You know, Canada really pioneered an incredibly innovative model where, in addition to the standard approach to government-sponsored resettlement, they would support groups of families or Uh, sort of networks of people in an organization or a religious institution, basically offering private sponsorship to refugees. And what that means is that a refugee could come into Canada sponsored by this group, and with some technical advice and support from the government, this group would provide all of the basic resettlement services, including cash assistance, including access to housing, facilitation of integration into the labor market and social networks that the refugee family would need. Uh, And, you know, almost half of refugees in Canada are now coming in through this private sponsorship scheme. It's a pretty extraordinary enterprise because one of the things that it does is it takes advantage of the power and motivation and passion of citizens who, again, for this incredibly vulnerable population from overseas, want to throw their arms open and welcome people. It also potentially has huge knock-on benefits in the sense of building a political coalition and constituency that both understands the hardships that people confront around the world, the challenges of facilitating integration, and the need for kind of robust governmental commitments to support this process, either in providing resources or in opening up space. And so I think this is an incredibly exciting model. We see some examples of this uh, being started in the United States. There's one group in New Haven. We're working with LIRS, which is running some pilot experiments on co-sponsorship as well. I think one of the hard things about the Canadian model is that we can't yet tell whether the returns are better for refugees who have come through private sponsorship 
than through government sponsorship, in part because very different populations of refugees come through private sponsorship. They tend to be more highly educated, have more skills uh, when they come in. And so the better outcomes that we see in practice could be a function of the different skill mix of these populations. But I think, you know, if we think about how overburdened our governmental systems are uh, in responding to this crisis and also the challenges that we've seen with respect to building a political constituency uh, in support of refugee resettlement, thinking hard about private sponsorship, very consistent with American history and the role of voluntary organizations and, and communities, this is a way of really opening up the process of refugee resettlement. And I think the political constituency, particularly at this moment in the political climate, feels like the holy grail. It's the thing that people want the silver bullet to, to magically change. And one of the things that I grapple with is actually just how this plays out in the numbers. So let's take a high year in the United States when you have a lot of refugees being resettled. Let's say it's 100,000, which is an extremely high year. And there's five co-sponsors or five sponsors for each of those refugees. That means you have 500,000 people who are participating in kind of the sponsorship enterprise. And those people are scattered across the United States in different locations where refugees are being resettled to. It's hard for me to imagine how that fundamentally shifts the political dial when you actually look at electoral politics at the lower level in thinking that that would shift any vote count in a local district, that it would fundamentally actually cascade up to changing politics in the way that I think they're hopes for. And so while I'm I'm personally kind of convinced that it actually builds a political constituency. I'm not necessarily convinced that it does this in a way that's actually meaningful enough to change politics. And I'm, I'm curious to hear what you think of that. So I'd challenge you and just say, to what extent does having an impact on our politics depend on mobili mobilizing large numbers of people to vote differently in an election? I don't think it's going to be the case that our policy environment on refugee resettlement is a top voting priority for people. You know, what's going to drive the popular vote in a presidential election or a congressional election, there are going to be like 50 other issues that are higher than refugee resettlement. But building a constituency of 500,000 people with this set of experiences, number one, could be a boon to all the organizations that are doing this work, that are short of financing, uh, and that are lobbying and advocating themselves for a growing population. You may get uh, sort of advocacy organizations that emerge from passionate individuals uh, that begin to exercise their influence in different ways, directly with legislators, directly with their governors to push back on what's happening at the federal level. Like policy just isn't made by referendum in the United States. It's made by organized interest groups and their interplay with representational politics. And I think that's one of the, the key points there which is that those sponsors actually have to then become politically mobilized. And that actually has to translate into that. And what, what I think is interesting if, is, is more the long-term perspective. Sure, so sure, I don't think it will affect the immediate election. But in Canada, uh, 2 million Canadians have acted as sponsors. That's 7% of the adult population. And if you think about how many people know somebody who's sponsored a refugee, I think that's how it starts to change uh, attitudes over a longer period of time. I just want to end really by coming back to where we started, which is actually the sheer numbers. So we spent a lot of this conversation talking about how we can improve the experience and raise employment outcomes and independence and so on. But perhaps what's even more important is actually just getting more refugees in. You've spent time not just in academia, but in the heart of government. What's your view about how we actually convince more countries to open up refugee resettlement slots? And what do you think is a credible medium-term aim in terms of the number? Can we get up to 300,000? So I think, I think you're absolutely right, Ravi, that a critical part 
of the story has got to be growing the set of countries that participate in refugee resettlement around the world. And of course, this was a big priority of President Obama when he was expanding the refugee resettlement numbers in the United States uh, to build a coalition through a UN General Assembly summit to grow the number of spots worldwide. Okay, so what stands in the way of refugee resettlement? So one thing that stands in the way is a sense that countries are taking on some significant economic costs uh, in the near term to facilitate the arrival of new refugees. You have to build an infrastructure to support them. You have to have resources available to pay for their housing and, and facilitate their access to education and language and the, and the like. And while that may be relatively inexpensive for the richest countries in the world, for middle-income countries, they neither have an infrastructure in place nor do they have the resources readily available to support this kind of resettlement. So some of the work you know, that I've been doing in partnership with the Center for Global Development is about how we think about tapping into two forms of capital to facilitate resettlement that are not currently easily available. One is the capital that humanitarian donors invest in any refugee that remains overseas and displaced from their country for up to 15 years on average. If you could take some of those resources and pull them forward as an endowment for an individual, you could help to meet some of these upfront costs, knowing that otherwise those resources would be expended over time while someone remained in a frontline country. The second thing is how do you borrow against the future earnings of a refugee? We know that like any individual who invests in education and takes a loan, they're borrowing against their future earnings in order to get the skills that will enable them to earn more over time. Refugee resettlement really has the same sort of dynamic. We're bringing people to the United States or to Canada. We expect them to be contributing folks in our economy over time, but we can't meet those financial costs in the short term. And innovative finance can play a role. So, so one thing is addressing those constraints. The second is you really need a set of countries in the world that are leading on these issues, that are opening up their doors and showing what's possible because the persuasive potential of having the US and European countries and Canada and others lead is quite effective. And we saw that around the Leaders Summit at the UN General Assembly in 2016. But right now we're moving in exactly the opposite direction. As the US basically shuts down its refugee resettlement program to a trickle, uh, as Canada doesn't continue to grow its numbers, as Europeans struggle to manage this issue. And that makes it really hard to grow uh, the set of countries. And then the third thing is you've got you've to confront directly the cultural fears you know, of people from different backgrounds and different cultures that animate a lot of the nativist sentiment that we see in countries that are concerned about immigration and refugees. And you have to do that through really thinking hard about how you generate empathy, right? How you help people understand the plight of people who are seeking refuge from really difficult environments, how you de-otherize them, how you reduce fear of difference. And this is something that as we're grappling with this in the United States, not just about refugees, but about anyone who looks different or worships a different God or loves a different person, this is a core challenge for all of our societies at this point, which is to reclaim space for tolerance and understanding. And in the absence of that, you know, the refugee resettlement problem is going to be difficult to solve, but so are a bunch of other problems that we're grappling with. Thank you, Jeremy, for joining us on Displaced. Thanks, guys. That was Jeremy Weinstein, Professor of Political Science at Stanford University. 
If you want more on any of the topics we discussed today on the episode, check out our show notes at www.rescue.org slash displaced. In the meantime, remember to leave a review on the show at Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening. It makes a difference and we really appreciate it. You, you can also tweet us. I'm at Argor Murphy. And I'm at Grant M. Gordon. And email us too at displaced at rescue.org. At Vox Media, Displaced is produced by Megan Kunane. Our engineer is Jelani Carter. Golda Arthur is our senior producer, but I think she's out ATVing right now in the desert somewhere. And Nishak Kurwa is our executive producer of audio. At the IRC, Anna Fewer is our researcher. And special thanks to Alex Bandea, Natalie Sikorsky, and Ben Moskowitz. Thank you for listening and see you next week. <laughs>